Welcome to Perimenopology, where we explore and converse about what it means to transition out of the young, hot, fertile, and fuckable box that our society labels as most worthy when you were socialized as a woman. Around here, we're all about body literacy and talking about the topics that society tells us are unimportant or inappropriate. I'm Michelle Kapler, reproductive acupuncturist, Chinese medicine practitioner, and master feminist life coach. And you've got episode number 32. Hello, hello, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Perimenopology. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Ahuva Hirschkop. She's a registered dietitian, and further to that, she considers herself an anti-diet dietitian, which we are all about around here. In today's episode, we're diving into all things diet culture and burnout, and we'll discuss how these two things can be connected. We also talk about what it means to be an anti-diet dietitian, how diet culture can lead to burnout for people socialized as women, how food science and research doesn't actually reflect what we're told about our food and our health and our weight, sugar addiction, nervous system responses to the way that we think about diet and food, how we can begin to think about all of this differently, and of course, so many other juicy and delicious truth nuggets. Before I share our episode, I want to offer Ahuva's professional bio. Ahuva Magner Hirschkop is a Toronto-based anti-diet dietitian and burnout coach for professional women. In her one-on-one group coaching and corporate partnerships, she supports professional women and the organizations they support in stepping out of the working mom hustle culture that leads so many women to burnout so they can start enjoying their days again and making their goals a reality without losing themselves or compromising on their professional aspirations in the process. So without further ado, here is my interview with Ahuva. Welcome, Ahuva. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast with us today. I'm so excited to join you. I have been following you for a while now because I love following anti-diet dietitians, and I'm so excited to talk about what that is. So let's just dive right in. Tell us about the work that you do with people. It's such a big question. It's such a great question. Uh, Yeah, so by training, I am an anti-diet dietitian working specifically in the pediatric space and a burnout coach for professional women. And really the work that I do around, you know, the anti-diet side of dietetics is understanding that so much of historically how people have eaten is just based on rules, right? Think about any fad diet, think about all of the supposed to's, think about the you know, if you eat after 7 p.m., like a lightning you know, bolt is going to come down and strike you. Um, and really the work that I do in, you know, working with humans who are trying to raise intuitive eaters is stepping away from those rules and really supporting people in connecting back to their bodies. And that wisdom and that knowledge that our bodies have in what makes us feel good, how to fuel ourselves well, and doing that with in, you know, gentle nutrition, like what do we need to introduce to our kids? What are some things we should be conscious of? So it's not completely, let's never ever think about the foods that we're eating, but it's really how do we do that in a way that's supportive to us, not just setting random arbitrary rules that are really hard for our bodies to follow. That's so fascinating. And I think it brings up kind of a complex problem, which is that I think that we're hearing a lot of these buzzwords in the last, let's say, half decade about intuitive eating and 
following your hunger and fullness cues and these ideas about listening to your body's signals and messages as opposed to following a list of rules that are just you know, meant to be a blanket solution for everybody. Whereas, you know, as humans, our bodies are all different. And so there isn't a prescriptive set of actions and things that we can do to get a particular health outcome. And I think people are learning that more. But it's so interesting to kind of superimpose that idea on top of, for our generation, what is years and years of just existing in diet culture. As children of the 80s, we grew up in that fat-free be as thin as possible, thinness equals health kind of messaging all the time from every angle. And so it's so interesting to think about, well, is my body actually sending me signals that truly represent my physiology? Or is this just messaging that I've internalized from diet culture? So such an interesting thing to start to dismantle. I'm, And I know it's a big topic, but I'm interested to hear a couple of your thoughts on that. I think that's so, you know, real and especially someone who works in the pediatric space, right? It's so, so difficult. And I think that sometimes even becoming a parent, right? And then trying to feed little humans is one of the first times that really people start becoming aware of like, oh, all these things I really thought that I was listening to my body. I'm actually just listening to these rules, right? Because tiny humans are so great about listening to, to, to their own bodies and you know the, the things that their bodies need when put in the proper position to do that. And so number one for a lot of people raising, you know, kids is the first time that they're like, okay, I really do need to step away from these rules because I don't want my kids' relationship with their body to be the same thing that mine was, right? Number one. And also just recognizing how hard that is. How hard it is sometimes to choose a different path, start saying, okay, I'm gonna teach my kids to do this and to eat like this and to listen to my butt to their bodies when number one, I don't know how to do that for myself. And number two, raising intuitive eaters, the skills that you need to develop in your kids when, um, you know, to raise intuitive eaters is very different than being an intuitive eater. They're two very different things. And so that can also be confusing because a lot of the instincts that we have as parents are from millions of years ago, right? Like if you find food, get as much into your kid as humanly possible because we're probably not going to find, you know, another animal in the savanna for another like six days. They need all the calories they can. And that's that's basically when our evolution stopped. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that can be applied to even the way we relate to a lot of our behaviors and health choices in ourselves as well in that, you know, we have to honor that we have these messages from our brains that are very much rooted in that primal way of living when we were a tribal society. And it was, you know, literally about survival in those days. And I think in some ways, our brains and our bodies have adapted to our modern life, but we still have those like very basic survival instincts that maybe don't fit within the current context that we're living in, which is, I think, an interesting segue into the next question that I have for you. Um, I think that, you know, the conversation about raising intuitive eaters is really important and one that I'm having with myself on an ongoing basis. And so I'm obviously going to come back and follow your work. But what I want to talk about today is that relationship with our own food and nutrition and eating and how that plays out to how our nervous systems are behaving and the potential for burnout. Because what I see a lot of in my patient base, which is helping perimenopausal women kind of transition into the next stage of life is 
all of these messages coming up that are rooted in healthism about it is your moral obligation to have a specific set of health behaviors that you do that we are taught will give us a particular or certain or desirable health outcome. But perimenopause is a time in life when your body's kind of like, yeah, we're not going to operate in the same way. Your hormones are changing. The things that you used to do to, let's say, maintain a certain health status or have a particular body size or body shape might not work in the same way. And so I think that what I see a lot clinically, especially because I work with a lot of kind of type A perfectionist women, is that they want to lean even harder into these rules they have for themselves. So as an anti-diet dietitian, can you talk a little bit about that relationship between people's ideas about diet and the way their nervous systems react and the burnout that can occur? Completely. I think that's so real. And I think that again, you know, that even that those hormonal shifts, like we go through that countless times as women, right? And so number one, you know, I spoke about being parents in the savannah, but also recognizing that there's for centuries been expectations around what women's bodies are going to look like and are supposed to look like, right? And I'm I'm teaching a four-week course on perfectionism now, actually, and we just spoke about this yesterday, but remembering that it really wasn't too long ago where women had zero rights, right? You literally got married with a dowry. You were like, please, for the love of God, I'll come with my own bed sheets if you'll just accept me into your household, right? Because you couldn't own your own property and you couldn't have your own bank account and you couldn't have your own money and you couldn't have all of these things. And so the perfectionism, separate from the fact that now we're seeing and we're being more transparent about the fact that weight and health are not the same thing, right? We can be healthy in lots of different bodies, sizes, and shapes, but that perfectionism around, if there's a standard, I must meet it, or there's going to be some danger for me, right? Is really triggering to so many women's nervous systems. And what do we, what have we historically been taught to do is not to do that nervous system work and not to lean into, okay, how do I tend to my nervous system? How do I, you know, whether it's coaching, whether it's working with your hormones, whether it's, you know, whatever that looks like, it's let's just fix the problem and just make sure that, our, that my body just looks like that forever. Because that's what we've been told. As long as your body looks a certain way and as long as you're a certain skirt size or as long as you can still, you know, weigh a certain amount, you'll be safe. And so it's almost like there's this, you know, the, the, Wizard of Oz, like there's the guy behind the curtain who's like, hey, this isn't going to work. And we're like, pipe down. I just need to work harder. I just need to do more CrossFit. Okay. And I'll get my body down to that size. And all that we do is number one, you know, agitate our nervous systems more because as we age, our bodies are not meant to move this, the same way or eat the same way as we did when we were younger. And actually, just from a physiological perspective, as we get older into our like fifth, sixth, seventh decade, it can be more protective to hold a little bit of extra weight um, from an actual nutrition and health perspective. But it really is that, you know, fighting that we have against this ideal and this real fear that we have that if we don't meet it, all hell is going to break loose. Like we're going to be in serious trouble. We're going to be excommunicated from the tribe and we're going to be in real trouble. Yeah. And I think your point about how, that was actually a reality for a lot of women not that long ago, like less than a hundred years ago. 
It yeah. actually did threaten your survival if your, you know, your spouse no longer found you attractive or, you know, said a couple of things about you putting on a few pounds. Like that was an actual reality for people. So I think it's it's good to acknowledge that historical context, but also know that that's not necessarily the truth anymore because we have a lot of options and we can still honor that that's there, um, but also make conscious choices to think about it differently. I think that that conversation about holding on to a little bit of weight because it can be protective. I I know it was kind of something that you just said in passing, but I want to go back and pause on that idea a little bit because I think that, first of all, it's something that I've never directly talked about on the podcast before. And I think it's a really important conversation because we're being told from every angle for a lot of reasons, some of them well-meaning and some of them rather sinister, that the smaller you are, the healthier you are. And, you know, it's for superficial reasons. It's for, you know, reasons that are reflected in social media. It's also for reasons like pharmaceutical companies just want to sell weight loss medications. And there's a lot of money to be made in telling people that it's important to be as thin as possible. So can you tell us a little bit about that idea that in the later, as I think, as you beautifully put the fifth and sixth and seventh, and maybe even eighth decade of life, it can actually be a good thing, because that's part of that whole oh, we can maybe trust our bodies to be doing the right thing. But meanwhile, we're pushing back against this idea that, yeah, there's some weight redistribution. Um, and because, you know, society's telling us that it's not okay and that it's bad for our health. So tell us a little bit about how it actually might be good for our health. Yeah. And, and that's definitely true in the later years of our life. And I think, again, you know, as an as a dietitian, we don't talk about BMI. Like we recognize that that is not a, a, uh, measure that is very useful, even though people talk about it as though it's the gold standard. But even when we talk about things like the BMI for people throughout their lifespan, we forget that in theory, we're talking about a window of optimal health, right? Even if we were to use the BMI uh, and and say that it was a proper measure, we forget that, you know, we talk about there can be health implications of having excess adiposity, right? Higher weights and equally of lower weights, right? That kind of like that end of the sentence seems to be just conveniently crossed out and we never really discuss that, right? Everybody's goal seems to be to get as low as possible and having a smaller body is not always healthy and it does not make you healthier throughout your lifespan, right? We see even in people who do carry around more weight throughout their lives, they're at lo- often at lower risk of things like osteoporosis because just by by the nature of walking around with more uh, you know, weight on your bones, your bones tend to get stronger, right? So there are things throughout our lives where having higher weights or having you know higher adiposity can be more health protective. And specifically later on, when fall, when there's you know higher risk of things like fall risk in in the sixth and seventh decade, or even of decreased appetite, of um, decreasing you know taste, people who aren't as motivated to eat even. When we start at a much lower weight, we're at higher risk of malnutrition, right? We have less, we have less leeway, let's say. And so being at slightly higher weight can be protective in that you have lower fall risk. There's lots of other, um, you know, health benefits to doing that. And just that you have more leeway in any direction that you might go. Whereas if we start very, very thin, 
number one, for a lot of people who their entire goal has been to reduce calories throughout their entire lives. Um, even things like only doing cardio exercise and never doing weight bearing exercises can have high risk of osteoporosis, having very low calorie diets, specifically very low calcium diets can strip your bones of nutrients that you need throughout your life and put you at risk for, you know, later on in your life. And we don't really talk about those long-term implications of continuously being in diet culture, even in the perimenopausal, you know, like forties, fifties, or even in your teens. Mm-hmm. Such an important point. And I love using osteoporosis as an example, because it's something that is well established in research that needs to be monitored as somebody comes into their 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, So, you know, excellent point there. One thing I was thinking about as you were talking was I think a question that kind of organically comes up for people as we're having this conversation. And another example that I kind of talk about is, you know, just the estrogen balance of things. So, you know, for example, what happens in perimenopause is there is a different type of estrogen that gets produced in your body and it's produced in different parts of the body. So you're no longer producing the majority of your estrogen through your ovaries. Uh, It takes a shift into being produced more so in your brain and also in your adipose tissue, your fat tissue. So to me, it logically makes sense that your body would want to put on a little bit more fat tissue onto your body if that's where the majority of your estrogen is being produced. And to me, it makes sense that that would actually be protective against certain types of cancers and things that are born out of an estrogen deficiency. So I think people are starting to hear ideas like that. But what I think organically comes up for a lot of people, especially women of our generation as we're heading into these years is, how do you know where that line is? You know, like, how do you know when you've crossed that line from, I'm just going to eat what I want, eat intuitively. If I figure out a diet and a lifestyle that feels good for me, I'm just going to end up with the body size and shape that I'm going to end up with. But, you know, how do I know if I've crossed a line into being too fat to be healthy? So it's a really interesting and very big topic that you're bringing up. And I think it's a really important one. And number one, you know, it's funny, I was just talking about this on another podcast in terms of, you know, burnout and the question of women putting themselves first. And I was saying that, you know, a lot of my clients or the the people that are in my space are like, if I ever do one thing for myself, I'm suddenly like, I'm just going to become a selfish human who's going to like go to Bermuda and never talk to my family again. And I'm like, I feel like there's, you know, a little bit of a spectrum between like maybe taking care of yourself and like going, you know, going to pee when you really need to, instead of giving refilling your kid's dinner plate and you all of a sudden becoming, you know, a person who doesn't care about people at all and just being a selfish human, but you know. Yeah. Maybe some steps in between those two things. Yeah. Maybe just a few. And I think that that's everybody's worst fear, right? Is what if all of a sudden I get rid of all of these food rules and I don't think about what I'm eating at all. And all of a sudden I'm going to just eat everything all the time in like, you know, that's in sight forever. And I, I understand that it's a real fear because for a lot of people who do step away from food rules, that does happen for a short time. For some people, depending on how well you do it, the support that you have, who you're working with, who you have in your corner to do this with, the, you know, the length of time that that happens can be different. But if people have been restricting for a very long time, if people have never let themselves eat a chocolate bar for 20 years, 
yeah, if you start eating one chocolate bar, the likelihood is you're going to want 15, right? And that might happen for a while. And so people sometimes think about maybe let's not, you know, have any food rules. And they also make the mistake of connecting that with, you know, when that time where they maybe like binge ate, or they were like, I'm going to let myself eat. But in the same time in their head, we're being like, this is very bad for you. You should not do this. You should not be eating this. You're going to put on five pounds. And those two things are not the same, right? So sometimes the examples that we have in our brains of, if I let myself do it, I'm just going to completely let myself go, are not at all reflective of what it actually means, right? When we talk about intuitive eating, there's 10 steps. And the 10th step is gentle nutrition. So it's not just don't ever think about anything all the time, number one. Number two, like if you only ate chocolate for six weeks, only, that was the only food you ate. Like, do you really think you're never going to get sick of it? Like what? what's the likelihood if we really played this out all the way to the end that you are going to subsist on ice cream and chocolate and all those foods forever and ever for 20 years, right? Because it's likely not going to happen but also being able and open to take part in that transition time where maybe there are more of those foods and maybe we are understanding what food freedom looks like and really paying attention to your body without making the, you know, there have to be a right or wrong choice. And I talk about this myself even with ice cream because I'm an Eastern European Jew. So none of our bodies were made to handle lactose like everybody is lactose intolerant, but I love ice cream, right? And so if I'm really listening to my body, I would not eat ice cream because sometimes I have a stomach ache after. If I was going to do that 100% of the time, but that's not what it is either, right? It's not going into these food rules of listening to your body. It's being able to understand why you're making certain choices and like your reasons for making them, right? Like sometimes my kids want to go out for ice cream and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And I get ice cream. And then sometimes my stomach's not so happy, but like the ice cream was fantastic and I'm so happy about it, right? And so, you know, it's not about never thinking about what could benefit your body. It's not about thinking like maybe I should eat some vegetables, but it is having that consideration as a part of how can I take care of my body well? How can I respect my body well? right? How can I want to nourish my body well? Not, well, Cosmopolitan Magazine when I was 18 told me that if I eat carbs after 7 p.m., then like, you know, something was going to happen. I was going to take gain five pounds overnight. And so I obviously can't eat those foods. I think that's such, uh, so many juicy nuggets there. But one thing I was thinking about as you were talking was this idea that you know, restriction kind of is the key to kind of going a little bit deeper with the reasons why we choose what we choose in terms of quote unquote bad foods. And what I'm seeing a lot right now on social media, as we're kind of coming up to the summer months here in Canada, you know, people are thinking about wearing less clothing. People are thinking about being in bathing suits. People are thinking about the way their bodies are looking. And I think that a lot of people are kind of maybe um, kind of trying to capitalize on that insecurity that's coming up for a lot of us right now. And I'm seeing a lot of sugar detoxes 
like sugar detoxes, people advertising that they're running sugar detoxes. And then with it comes all of this conversation around how sugar is addictive and sugar is as addictive as cocaine. Um, (laughs) There was just a really good maintenance phase podcast, which is the opposite of that message, all about dismantling some of the science. Aubrey Gordon is, I love her. I just love her. I could just listen to her talk about anything forever. The best. If you want to find Aubrey on social, go to your fat friend on Instagram. She's amazing. So is her co-host, Michael Hobbs. I've posted about the podcast before. But this idea that sugar is addictive and we have to, I think, ask ourselves the question now that we have the depth of science in terms of human behavior and patterns of addiction. And is that actually what's going on when it comes to sugar? Is it the chemical itself? And hint, the science says no. Or is it the restriction that's making us feel like we're addicted to sugar? And the problem is, is that our society has, you know, almost as strongly equated the two, right? In the same way as any other addictive substance, like in the same way that we're telling kids, you can't have alcohol, we're also often saying to kids like sugar is horrible for you, right? We don't even recognize. And I say we, because I do this inadvertently, like we all sort of have, you know, one in the same soup is that we're really framing it in the same way, right? So then when we see people respond in the same way, we we're like, oh, see, we were right the whole time. And that's not necessarily true. We're sort of twisting what actually is happening is when we're framing it oh it's so bad it's this it's that like you you can't have it absolutely you shouldn't and then all of a sudden people get access to it and they're like oh my god this is amazing and i want all of it right i remember and you know my household wasn't restrictive growing up but i still remember a friend who had a like they used to call it their junk cupboard and it was just packed to the gills all the time and i swear you'd open it and angels would sing like i swear you know i was like I'm just in heaven as a child, right? Because what more could you want other than endless Laffy Taffies? And so when we talk about it like that and totally ignore everything else that's going on with our kids and with the restriction, you know, we just very well confuse what's really happening. And we say this with sugar, with kids, we talk about this with certain foods, you know, when people are like, I can't keep my trigger foods in the house. Right? I just don't buy chips because if they're here, I'm going to eat all of them. And again, that's just backwards logic of, well, maybe you're eating them, all of them, because you never keep them in the house and you have this, I'm going to get back on track mentality. You know, I always joke, what do people do the night before they go to a dietitian? They eat their entire cupboard, right? If you're going to a weight loss dietitian, you're going to eat your entire cupboard. And if every single day you're starting tomorrow, then every single night, you're going to eat everything that's in the cupboard, right? So if you never buy the chips because they're your trigger food, why don't we instead think about why that is? Yeah, I love that. And that's so, that's such a deeply personal message to me. I've, in the last year, I've just been on this journey of really kind of dismantling my disordered relationship to food, which, you know, honestly started in my childhood because I grew up in one of those families who just didn't have any junk in the house. And we were taught from a very young age, very explicitly, that we are responsible for our health outcomes, that diet is medicine, and that it can, that if you have something go wrong with your health, it's your fault for eating the wrong 
foods. And so like that carried on into my adulthood. And it's been really interesting to give myself unconditional permission to eat whatever I want. And yes, that did result in the very beginning in me just you know, eating some McDonald's, eating some ice cream for breakfast, because you kind of have that rebound effect where you've been like, I was gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, sugar-free, like all, no alcohol, no coffee, all the the things. Yeah. All the (laughs) freeze for a good decade of my life. And, um, you know, I almost took pride in it. It was kind of like this moral accomplishment that I could be so quote unquote disciplined. And so it was, there was a bit of a rebound effect when I was like, okay, I'm just going to unconditionally allow myself to have whatever I want. But then yeah, eventually things kind of regulated and I'm not reaching for those things all the time. But I think it's because I tell myself that I can have them whenever I want. Yeah. And it is, right. It's totally different. I talk about this even on you know as a jew like we fast there's a couple of big fasts throughout the year and it's like yom kippur which is the 25 hour fast like i've just eaten dinner and the fast starts in the evening so like i could have just eaten dinner and been really like very full and be like i'm parched i need a cup of water like i'm dying right now and i'm like i literally just finished a glass of water like i don't right but it is we we see it in so many ways it's like don't look at you know the blue elephant right and all you want to look at is the blue elephant we see it in so many other ways and somehow when it comes to food we all just think and and it's not only that we think we've just been fed it by so many people and so many you know quote unquote experts that it it has nothing to do with the society and which the way the framing that we have of these foods it's just it's us it's our biology it's exactly we're all addicted to sugar and that is really challenging, especially for people who don't understand chemistry, right? Who don't necessarily understand how hormones work in the body and don't understand things like the dopamine response and what dopamine actually does. And all, you know, even when we think about the fact that people talk about, you know, carbs turning into serotonin, they're like, see, that's why carbs are addictive too. You're like, okay, we, 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 there's a lot of chemistry that we have to talk about before we get into that. There are some missing steps there in that equation. Totally. (laughs) If you don't understand it, and sometimes you get a large fries and you finish the large fries and you feel guilty about that, you see this and you're like, oh, that makes sense, right? I don't have to feel horrible anymore because I've been guilting myself for six weeks because I finished my whole large fries when I went to McDonald's and I don't actually have to feel guilty. It's just humans are addicted to food. So I should just avoid all of those things, right? It checks out, like it checks enough boxes. Those theories check enough boxes for people that we don't always have to explore further. It's even like intermittent fasting, which, you know, I've heard from so many clients. They're like, it really works well for my husband and it doesn't work well for me. And I'm like, that's because you're a woman and your hormones are different. Yes. So totally. And also we forget that People who are like, when I intermittent fast, I just, I have this massive like brain clarity. I can just go for hours, right? And I'm like, do you know that like, so can people who are anorexic, like they're, they stay awake, they have trouble sleeping, they can't relax, they can't sit down because when your body is so deprived of food, it keeps you hyper aware. Your cortisol literally gets secreted to keep you hyper aware of any danger that might be around you and any opportunities for food. Oh, yeah. These are all negative things that we've somehow spun to be like, see, it's super healthy for you. Yeah. I I don't know if you follow Dr. Adrian Chavez on 
Instagram? I don't. You need to follow him. He's amazing. He's a doctor. He has a PhD in nutrition research, I believe. And he talks like he makes it his mission to basically dismantle faulty health claims, like un unsubstantiated health claims. And he talks a lot about intermittent fasting. And the reason being why it works so well is because it's just another way of restricting your calories. And when I say work so well, I mean, in the context of like making your body smaller. So I think it's interesting to kind of see that, yeah, that's what the research supports, but it's not actually a magical way of eating. Also, the majority of the research that's been done on intermittent fasting and the health benefits of that have been done on men. And it's important to take into consideration that our bodies, especially as people who cycle and menstruate, just operate from a very different perspective. But that's um, that's an area that I want to zoom in a little bit on just for a second here is... I have a lot of people that come to me clinically that are doing intermittent fasting and they're saying, yeah, this is the way that I'm going to maintain my body weight. Um, what would you have to say in response to that? Because they kind of come to me and they say, yeah, it's working. I've been doing it for four weeks and it's working. So, you know, how would you maybe continue that conversation? So number one, on I think it was my first day in school, in nutrition school, I still remember my professor, whose name I'm now blinking on, but I can like see it in my brain. We were talking about nutrition and she was like, yeah, I have a magical weight loss solution. These, these mittens, right? And she was talking all about these mittens and they're red and they're great and da, 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 And that like you wear them and they magically make you lose weight, right? And she's like, you just, the, you know, you can't eat though when you're wearing the mittens because it interrupts the mechanism. And it was like, wear the mittens for 23 and a half hours a day. Right? <laughs> and it sounds hilarious. And when you think about it, it's literally every single fad diet ever. Right. And so the reality is, is I think we need to take a step back and start. Like, I love that you brought up maintenance phase because I, I actually love that podcast because it makes some of this research so accessible for people who have never gone to school for nutrition or are not in a health related field. And they're like, Hey, I just, I need to distinguish between what should I listen to and what should I not? And it's such an accessible way. And so I like hard plug for that podcast. But as you said in the question, like, I think we need to go back and start redefining what working looks like, right? Because a lot of any any fad diet works. Intermittent fasting will work to reduce your weight if you eventually just o- are only eating for that six-hour period. And what we forget is that our bodies are really great at upregulating and downregulating, number one, is that things that work in the short term do not often work in the long term, meaning our bodies are really smart and they're great at conserving energy. If suddenly you're cutting out hundreds of calories every single day, your body will reduce your metabolic rate. It'll slow down how much energy it uses to do things to account for that. I promise you, I used to work at a clinic that does that used to do basal metabolic rate testing. And the decreases that we've seen after people do fad diets for years is mind-boggling. Like how many calories it now takes for people to actually just survive because their bodies have gotten so good at conserving energy number one. And number two is really thinking about the example. I'm going to get this example actually, because uh, I talk about this, this example in perfectionism a lot in describing perfectionism, but I think that it works really well for this also is, um, you know, if you take a medication, 
right? Lots of pills do what you want them to do. An antibiotic can cure an infection. But there's a ton of side effects. And if you all of a sudden were taking a medication that was, you know, curing your infection, but had you breaking out in a complete allergic reaction, you'd probably go back to the doctor and be like, hey, it's achieving this one thing, but really like I got some other stuff going on that now we need to work on, right? And the doctor might change the medication. You might come off the medication. There's lots of things. We don't all of a sudden say there's only one medication and that's it. Let's deal with everything, right? And sometimes we forget that when we say it's working, we're only measuring one thing. Is your weight decreasing? And that's, again, only a short-term thing. You have no idea if it's going to eventually plateau or you're going to start gaining weight. So it working is even questionable. But we forget about all of these other unwanted side effects that can happen, like issues sleeping, which for menopausal women, like there's enough trouble there already. We don't need to add fuel to the fire, right? With energy, with even being able to fuel yourself well enough to do some of the weight-bearing exercises or some of those things that can improve your health as you move into those years. And so there's a lot of ways in which it's not working. And we need to step back out of the tunnel vision of health only being weight and only being your pant size and start really looking at like what else isn't working about this routine. Oh, so good. I'm just over here, like cheering inside my head. (laughs) So good. So, so good. Thank you. Okay. So I'm sure there are going to be people who are listening to this who, I mean, if you're my podcast listener, this is not a new concept for you (laughs) because I talk about let's not do healthism and diet culture anymore. Let's, let's take that into the rest of our lives. But if there's somebody who's listening, who's like, this just clicked for me today. This information just made me decide that I want to try to live the rest of my life in a different way other than constantly being focused on what foods I'm eating and what size my body is. And they're going to perhaps take the perimenopausal transition as an opportunity and a vehicle to examine and dismantle this. If they're just kind of getting started and dipping their toe in the water today, what's that first step that you would recommend for them? So the first step is to recognize that you're going to freak the hell out as you do it. Like you're going to take one thing. You're going to be like, okay, I'm going to try and eat some chocolate today. Or I'm going to, you know, not, I'm not going to measure out the cereal that I'm putting into my bowl. And your brain is going to freak out in complete danger. And so recognizing again, like this doesn't have to be something that you all of a sudden decide tomorrow that you're going to switch and expect yourself to be the perfect version of this healed human tomorrow. And so I would encourage people to even before they decide to take the steps that like any changes, start getting really comfortable. And this is basically the recommendation that I give for anything you're doing in life, but just get really comfortable starting to ask yourself why, right? So like if you want to measure out something that you're eating because you've done that for the last 30 years, start asking yourself why that is. And because it'll start bringing up so many of these ways, even if you think you know, like, hey, uh, like I, I'm doing really well with this, or I don't, like food doesn't take over my life, or I don't think so much about it. It's going to bring up, like, and make very, very clear how much mental energy, how much time, how much space in your day is being taken up with these decisions and make the reasoning really clear. Like if you're measuring out your, your cereal because you're 53 and when you were six, your mother told you that you really should do that so you don't overeat the cereal, 
Like sometimes you stand there and you like laugh in your kitchen. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is still why I'm doing this thing. Because once upon a time I heard, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so just clarifying the the why is like, why are we doing all of these things starts to allow you to just ask the question of, do I still want to do this? Right. Do I like that reason? Is that reason enough for me to do this for the next 20 years of my life? And then get access to whatever support you need, whether that's following intuitive eating accounts on social media, whether that's working with an intuitive eating dietitian or coach to really be able to bounce those ideas off of of you because it is, it can be really stressful. Like, you know, you talked about your year. I'm sure the first time that you were like, okay, I'm I'm not going to do this today. Your brain was like, what do you mean? Like, we're like basically taking off all of our protective armor, right? Like, and you're like throwing us, you're throwing us to the dogs here. And that's really how our brains react. Yeah. And I think that that point that you made about asking why is such an interesting tool to reframe things in the moment. Because, I mean, I I can only speak from personal experience um, on this subject in that for me, it was taking off that armor was full on panic. It was like, it was anxiety. It was my nervous system being attuned to go into fight or flight mode when I was, you know, potentially not doing these habits that I had for years. And a really powerful way to kind of reshift or reframe or even just notice is asking that question why? Because it creates that feeling of curiosity, which I think is the antidote to a lot of negative emotions that we have around this stuff because it just interrupts that habit pattern and really makes us think about the deeper reasons why we're doing these things. I love that so much. Okay, so I know that people are going to want to come and find you and follow you. So please tell everybody where they can find you and if you have anything interesting happening right now. Yeah, so I my handle on Instagram, which is where I hang out lots, is Ahufa Hirschkop. There we talk about burnout culture and hustle culture and diet culture and all the ways that women are socialized into all of these things. And I run a free community on Facebook called Beyond Burnout with Ahuva Hirschkop. Right now, I'm actually running a four-week course on stepping out of perfectionism uh, called Good Enough that is likely going to be running again in June. And I also run a 12-week program for women who just really want to ditch the diet culture and all of the other quote unquote, like right ways they're supposed to live their lives so they can actually build and, and live a life that they love called the unapologetic living code which is uh, available all the time so good okay so i will make sure that I have all of that linked up in the show notes so people can click and find it easily Huva, thank you so much for coming on and having this really important conversation thank you so much for having me so that's my interview with Ahuva Hirschkop. If you resonated with our conversation, please find and follow her. I have all of her info linked up in the show notes. That'll about do it for me today. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you are loving what you're learning in the podcast and you want to take this work to a deeper level, let's work together. If you are a resident of Ontario, Canada, we can work together in a clinical setting, both virtually or in person, to help you find a unique and customized treatment plan to alleviate your perimenopausal symptoms and get you the relief you deserve using Chinese medicine. Or if you're looking for support with body image, confidence, advocating for yourself and seeking treatment, or just generally making your life as awesome as possible through this transition and beyond, I can help you anywhere in the world through coaching. To learn more about your options for working with me, head to michellecapley.com and click on work with me on the overhead menu. I can't wait to talk with you.